When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The events of this episode are more speculative than usual. The Egyptians preferred not to record bad events when they could avoid it, but traces of evidence suggest that between 1380 and 1370 BCE, a calamity of some sort hit the Nile Valley. To keep things manageable, I will go through the bits of evidence in the epilogue. For now, just know that I'm working with fragmentary and uncertain remains. With that massive disclaimer out of the way, let's begin. Hello everyone, welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 99, Sakmet's Demons. In this episode, dark times fall upon Egypt. Around 1380 BCE, the land was struck by a calamity, and an outbreak of disease brought suffering and death on the people of the Nile. This episode is brought to you by Eric Holmes, whose generosity supported the writing. Eric, thank you kindly. May Sobek, Lord of the Primeval Waters, guard you and use his power on your behalf. The son of Neith, Sobek, will protect you from dark magic and overcome all evil. To everyone listening, please enjoy the story. The year was 1380 BCE. Regnal year 20 under the majesty of Amunhotep III, king of Egypt. Life was good. In the halls of the royal palace, great wealth was enjoyed by the family of the king. Throughout the state, the privileged of the land benefited from prosperity. In the royal palace, perhaps at Memphis or the Fayum, the sound of a woman screaming began to echo through the hallways. It was Queen T, who, at the age of 30, was experiencing contractions and going into labour. Queen T already had about five children. By now, she was quite experienced. But that did not make childbirth pleasant or any less dangerous. As she was led into the birthing room, T was entering a place of great danger. Midwives and priestesses led the queen into a room. They took her to a central space, an area where emblems of a goddess had been set up. These were symbols of Hathor, tall poles crowned with the human face of the goddess. They would protect T. Around the space, a priestess dragged a curved wand, a bit like a boomerang, dragging it through sand in a long oval. This made a protective ring around the queen, 
a sacred boundary in which childbirth could occur safely. T would not be lying down for this process, because Egyptian women gave birth in a squatting position. Squatting is quite advantageous. It stretches the pelvis further, widening the birth canal for the child. It also uses gravity to speed up the delivery, and requires less pushing for the mother. As far as we can tell, T and women like her would have crouched down to birth their children. To get into position, T stepped up and placed her feet atop two small stacks of magical decorated bricks. These bricks had been erected to either side of a pit dug into the earth. In the pit, fresh linen would absorb blood and catch the child when it emerged. So T squatted atop these bricks. Attendants held her arms and legs to support her. The bricks on which T squatted were made of dried mud, but they had been painted with bright images and hieroglyphs. The bricks acted as magical protectors of the woman going through labour. The hieroglyphs on them invoked divine assistance, and the symbols showed Hathor after she had successfully completed the process. In other words, the bricks were a physical prayer for a safe birth and a successful delivery. With those protections in place, it was down to the living women to make their hopes come true. Childbirth in the pre-modern world was incredibly dangerous, one of the leading causes of female and infant death. So as T was led into the birthing chamber and set herself up, we must imagine that she was preparing herself for what might be her last act upon the earth. Bracing herself, T started to push and her screams must have been loud. To either side, midwives supported the queen's limbs. Behind her, a priestess of Hathor stood ready to dispense magical assistance. T strained and struggled. The birth was not going to be easy. Pretty soon, the bleeding started, and this is where the danger began. Tearing, pushing, and pulling were all liable to cause injury. The blood, in particular, was a great danger. Untreated, blood loss could easily kill her, and perhaps the child as well. What's more, bleeding meant wounds, and that meant infection. So to protect the queen, the priestess of Hathor now stepped forward and began to recite a spell. Quote, Incantation for repelling blood. Get back blood of Horus, get back blood of Seth. Repelled is this blood that comes forth from the town of the elders. Repelled is the red blood that comes forth at this hour. You, blood, are ignorant of the dam, or tampon. Get back before Thoth. End quote. The priestess chanted and placed a bead of carnelian to the lower back or buttocks of the queen. In the manner of Egyptian amulets, this bead would draw out evil spirits and cleanse the mother in her moment of great danger. As she placed the bead to the flanks, the priestess recited another spell. Quote, this venomous seed is that of Apophis, whom great goddess Mafdet has taken away. Come out, seed, come out to a dead person instead. O goddess Mafdet, open your mouth wide against that enemy. Do not allow him to see even one opportunity for evil. End quote. The priestess invoked Mafdet, a protective goddess who appeared as a cat or mongoose. Mafdet would draw out the evil spirit and consume it, destroying any demon that caused T to bleed and suffer in her childbirth. 
thanks to Muffdet's protection, T could perform her great task free of malevolent forces. Time passed with great effort, but soon the birthing ended. It was a success, and T delivered her child without loss or death. Hathor had protected her, midwives had attended to her, and T, queen of the two lands, gave birth to yet another child. The new baby was a boy. The queen named him Amun-Hotep after his father, and he entered the royal household as the second son of the royal couple. Amun-Hotep had an interesting start. He was the younger brother of Prince Totmos, the heir to the throne, and when he was born, Amun-Hotep's destiny seemed like that of a comfortable but unremarkable life. One day, he would go into the clergy or priesthood of the land, or perhaps the royal administration. His elder brother Tutmos would take over the power of king. Amun-Hotep would simply be another member of the extended royal household. Nevertheless, his birth was a great moment, and Pharaoh Amun-Hotep III and Queen T must have been overjoyed at the little prince's arrival. Amun-Hotep was lucky to be born when he was. Had he been born a bit later, it is entirely possible that his life would have ended very prematurely. For the next few years, Egypt was at peace. Amun-Hotep began to grow, slowly escaping the danger zone of infancy. Queen T, although exhausted, recovered from her ordeal and returned to her energetic rule of the land. Along with her husband, the queen was probably feeling quite good. Soon, though, a cloud began to fall over Egypt. Trouble was brewing. From the villages and the towns, messengers came to the king with grave news. People were getting sick. Sometime in the third decade of Amunhotep III, Egypt may have experienced a prolonged bout of illness and death. There is no certainty, but it's quite possible that an outbreak of disease led to a calamity in the land. What was this disease? Well, the most likely candidates are malaria or plague. Malaria is nasty. The disease travels via various parasites, the worst of which is called Plasmodium falciparum. Sadly, falciparum is the type most common in Egypt. Fortunately, it's not always fatal, and those who contract it survive about 80% of the time. Nevertheless, an outbreak of Plasmodium falciparum is severe, and if you contract it strongly, you can be dead within days. Plague, on the other hand, is not a parasite, it is a bacteria. It is caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis. This is carried by fleas, and it can spread easily to small mammals and then onto humans. Once contracted, plague incubates for about seven days. After that, things move quickly. First, a fever, then chills, body aches and migraines, fatigue and weakness, and then vomiting. Plague is aggressive as hell, and very quickly it can spread to the lungs. Once it does, the coughing begins, and the epidemic starts. Plague is hard to treat. It requires early detection, and then antibiotics. Without both of those, it is rapidly fatal. Within less than a week, a totally healthy person can be covered in boils, coughing their lungs out, and then dead. Malaria and plague are real killers, with a horrible mortality rate. The most vulnerable, of course, are children and pregnant women. We've already seen how dangerous childbirth was. 
malaria and plague were on a whole other level. The outbreak began around 1375 BCE. The first to die were the poor. Villages, homesteads, towns and hamlets were numerous and close together. So if one house grew sick, it wouldn't take long to spread through a whole region. For every farmer who took his produce to town, or hunter who travelled through the countryside, there were many ways for the disease to transmit. Soon enough, households of the commoners were infected. Children, mothers, fathers and grandparents began to sicken. This was a quick process. As one family member fell ill, others were immediately at risk. One by one, the shadow of death fell on the homes of the people, and as each doorway grew dark, the evil spread to another place. In the royal palace, perhaps, things took a while to start, but when they did, the epidemic would rock the family to its core. At least four family members perished in this general period. The first may have been the pharaoh's mother. Somewhere around this time period, the queen mother Mut Emwia may have gotten sick and died. She was in her fifties, quite advanced age by Egyptian standards, and it would not be surprising if she was among the first to perish. Her death is not recorded in the annals, but we, at least, can give her some memorial. On a small statue of the Queen Mother, depicting her as the goddess Mut, a hieroglyphic inscription gives a nice summary of her accomplishments in life. This statue was erected at Karnak, and it may have served as an epitaph for the Queen. Certainly, it will do so for us. Quote, The hereditary princess, great of praise, Pre-eminent, the great queen, his beloved. Mother of the god, who gave birth to the king, who is praised by him, who may say anything, and it will be done for her. She occupies her seat, which is in her bark, splendid as an eternal work. The king's mother, Mut M. Weir. End quote. The queen mother went to her rest, and was buried in a tomb somewhere near Thebes. The burial is unknown, the mummy of the queen is gone. All that remains is a tiny trace of her burial goods, including a wooden shabti. This shabti figurine, the queen's servant in the afterlife, shows Mut M. Weir in the form of a mummy. It is 22 centimetres tall, 8.6 inches, and painted black with resin. Hieroglyphs are scratched onto it, and they say, Mut M. Weir given life, one whom the king loves. As a final testament, it is modest but sweet. Farewell, Mutemwia. The death of the Queen Mother was a great loss, but perhaps not a surprising one. Disease tends to strike down the very old and the very young first, because their immune systems are the most weakened or underdeveloped. So it comes as no surprise that after Mutemwia, the next royal victims of the plague were an elderly couple. I'm talking, of course, about Yuya and Chuyu the parents of Queen T. T's father, Yuya, and her mother, Chuyu, were now into their fifties. White-haired, deeply lined faces, and going bald, the famous couple were no match for the epidemic. Within a short time, perhaps just weeks of one another, they sickened and died. According to genetic study, Yuya and Chuyu did suffer malaria at some point, and this may have been what killed them. If so, their last days were probably deeply unpleasant. Once the couple fell sick, the progress of malaria turned out to be quite horrible. 
Yuya and Choyu would have suffered chills, muscle aches, tiredness and nausea, also vomiting and diarrhea. So far, not so bad, but then the hard stuff began. The couple's skin began to yellow as jaundice affected them. Then kidney failure, incredibly painful, and their organs began to shut down. As this began, the couple perhaps experienced seizures and mental confusion, before finally slipping into a coma and dying. This was a horrible way to go, and I think we should give them our sympathies. Yuya and Chuyu were embalmed and taken to their tomb in the Valley of the Kings. This tomb, which we explored in episode 97b, had one last secret to offer up. Amid the burial goods, two lovely pieces stand out. They are chairs, thrones, which were donated by the couple's granddaughter, Princess Sit Amun. The princess, whom we met last episode, gave her two childhood seats to the burial furnishings of her grandparents. In this way, she contributed to their grave and gave them useful objects for their eternal rest. It was a nice gesture, and I hope they enjoyed it. Three members of the royal family were now dead, and in many homes throughout Egypt the story was the same. People everywhere were growing sick and dying. This wasn't happening in isolation. In every town or village of the land, physicians or doctors were travelling from house to house in order to apply treatments and remedies where they could. It's time that we met some of these doctors and explored their methods. Egyptian doctors were called suwenu. They were remarkably similar to modern doctors, at least in their methodology. Firstly, they diagnosed the issue itself. Every ailment was categorized according to its symptoms and where on the body it appeared. So Egyptian medical books are divided into sections, according to the different problems that they discuss. We see categories for head injuries, skin disease, menstruation, or lack thereof, pregnancy, complications in childbirth, physical aches and pains, bloating, and so forth. If there was a visible or physical symptom, the Sowenu doctors could diagnose it and plan treatments. In the texts, we see concoctions made from plant material and fruits. Honey was popular, being used in poultices and potions, which is actually quite useful. Honey does have antiseptic properties, and it may have been good for healing wounds or sores. In a third type of treatment, the doctors would make bundles of plants, wrap them in animal fat, and burn them on a fire. They would use the smoke from this to purify wounds. So, it's all very basic by modern standards, but it's not totally devoid of merit. The doctors did seem to focus on purifying and cleansing, which is a good start for any treatment. Now, because this is the ancient world, Egyptian doctors were also priests. So the medical texts are not just devoted to prescriptions, they also include spells and incantations, which could aid the healing process. On top of that, many of the writings include prayers for the sick person to recite. These would ward off the supernatural forces that were attacking them. Finally, there were physical objects like amulets or flowers that could purify the body and the home. Put together, 
the ancient approach to treatment was quite holistic, multifaceted in its approach. In essence, Egyptian doctors, Suenu, were a combination of medical professional and religious healer. Travelling from house to house, they provided comfort and treatment where they could. Their tools were rudimentary by our standards, but they did their best to battle the growing epidemic. The disease was now unfolding rapidly. The elderly were dying, probably the young as well. Assuming the epidemic was malaria, the outbreak was now really getting along. With the death toll rising, people were struggling to find solutions. At this point, physicians were clearly out of their depth. Medical knowledge was simply not up to the task of a major outbreak. And at this point, the prescriptions must have seemed insufficient and woeful. With the outbreak quickly turning into a calamity, attention now turned to the gods. Religious Egyptians recognised that diseases were most likely the work of supernatural beings. Since they had no knowledge of bacteria, the ancients characterised disease as bad or malignant air. For something like plague, which can be airborne via coughing, the analogy is not so far-fetched. Since the air and elements of the world were controlled by the gods, it was natural that the Egyptians put two and two together and saw disease or pestilence as the work of the divine beings. The main culprit for such epidemics was Sakhmet. Sakhmet, the feminine power, was a great and terrible being. It was Sakhmet, acting as Ra's agent, who had brought calamity upon the world in the most ancient days. It was Sakhmet who heralded war and who spread plague upon the earth. Sakhmet and her agents were the bringers of all disease. A medical text written about 200 years before this time provides a very clear discussion of Sakhmet's influence and her role in spreading epidemics. Amongst various spells and incantations, we find this text which lays the blame quite clearly at the lioness's door. Quote, Spell for cleansing anything of disease. Say the following. O Sakhmet, your messengers have gone up in flame. Your night demons have retreated, Bastet. The year has not passed in a tempest against me. Your winds will not reach me, for I am Horus above the demons of Sakhmet. I shall not die for you. I shall not die for you. End quote. This spell is wonderfully revealing. It captures the interplay of medicinal and divine knowledge excellently. On the one hand, it recognises the airborne nature of disease, describing it as winds. On the other, it plays up the role of the gods, Sakhmet, Bastet and Horus, in the way that disease was spread or combated. Horus, of course, is one of the best protectors. Always victorious, he triumphs over any enemy and can beat back the pestilence with his mighty arms. But Sakhmet has her own demands, and the Egyptians recognised that to clear away disease, it was best to placate the goddess directly. As you would expect of a king like Amunhotep III, the pharaoh's approach to Sakhmet's attack was incredibly grandiose. In the city of Thebes, on the west bank of the Nile, Amunhotep III's great mortuary temple was still under construction. Work had advanced a great deal. The Colossi of Memnon now stood tall, along with their four siblings in the inner temple. 
At the heart of the sanctuary, the shrines were nearing completion, and the vast courtyard enclosures were fertile ground for new work. The king put his plan into action here. At the mortuary temple, sculptors began to erect a series of statues to different gods. There was a variety of these, jackals of Anubis, crocodiles of Sobek, rams of Amun, and of course, lionesses of Sakmet. Statues of Sakmet dominated the mortuary temple. There were several hundred of them all up. The statues are incredibly beautiful, even today. They are all made of a dark grey stone, granodiorite. This is incredibly hard, but it's worth it. It looks fabulous, and the pieces are still gorgeous today. Apart from their artistic merit, the statues were covered in hieroglyphs on the lower section. These inscriptions are very useful to us, because they provide a wide variety of names, titles, and epithets for the goddess Sakmet. These help us to understand her role, how she was perceived, and how people like Amunhotep worshipped the goddess specifically. Naturally, a lot of the titles are simple flattery. Quote, Sakmet of the Eastern Sky, Sakmet, Daughter of Osiris, Sakmet, Vigilant One, Sakmet, Satisfied One, Sakmet the Great, who is beloved of Ptah, Sakmet Hathor, to whom all chieftains belong, Sakmet, Lady of the Mound, on which stands Amun, Sakmet, whose powers are great among millions. End quote. That is but a small fraction of Sakmet's titles and epithets as they appear on these statues. Among the dozens, perhaps hundreds of names, there are references to many towns and communities. These might be the towns where Sakmet was worshipped, or perhaps they're the towns which contributed to the statue project. Either way, we can see that the cult of this goddess was very widespread. In a time of plague, Probably everyone with common sense was making offerings to this lioness. The statues are not just billboards for Sakmet, flattering her endlessly. They are a physical offering, and many of them carry the sort of titles which could almost seem like begging. The most poignant of these, I think, is the one that goes, quote, Sakmet, who does good, who makes the two lands live. This seems like a quiet plea for the goddess, Lady of Pestilence, to act kindly towards Egypt. To make the two lands live is to clear away the plague and relieve the people's sufferings. This seems like more than simple worship or praise. To me, and this is just me talking, the statues also seem like an act of desperation. Originally, there were several hundred of these Sakmet statues. We're not sure exactly how many, but the common estimate is 730, two for every day of the year. That's just, wow, a massive number, especially when you consider how tough the stone that they're made of actually is. How long would 700 statues take to make? Three years? Four? Five? Assuming the sculptors began working not long after the outbreak started, this could have been a very long and difficult project. Before the sculptors were done, Sakmet would have many more lives to claim. The sheer number of statues to Sakmet implies that the epidemic, if it occurred, lasted for at least two or three years. With such a long period of outbreak, things were really getting desperate. 
Whether it was malaria or bubonic plague, people were probably dying in horrific numbers. It wouldn't be so far-fetched to say that thousands were already dead. In the palace, three family members, Mut Emwia, Yuya, and Chuyu, had already lost their lives. Sadly, Sarkmet was going to take at least one more. The loss of the Queen Mother and the royal in-laws had been greatly personal, but perhaps not so bad politically. After all, they were elderly and it was time for them to pass on, sooner or later. The next death, however, was a true calamity. You see, it was around this time that the Crown Prince Tutmos, son of the king, fell sick and died. This was both a personal and a political tragedy. In his mid-twenties, Prince Tutmos was an accomplished figure. He had learned a great deal, and his father, almost certainly, had great plans for his future advancement, before one day handing the throne to him. Now, all of those dreams were dashed. In a time of epidemic, a loss like this could have been very destabilizing for the royal household as a political unit. For one thing, Prince Tutmos had been the heir for more than two decades. For another, he only had one brother that we know of, and in a time of disease, that son could easily pass away as well. Finally, a death like this must have seemed like a brutal blow from the great gods. Clearly, Sarkmet was not satisfied just yet. Prince Tutmos was buried somewhere, maybe in his father's tomb? We're not sure. His mummy does not survive, or at least has not been identified. Only one relic survives from his burial. It is a small statuette in the shape of a mummy. The mummy, Tutmos as Osiris, lies on a bed or bier. Atop him, a bar bird or Isis straddles the body, wings enfolding the mummy in an embrace. On the sides, hieroglyphs read simply, The Sem Priest Tutmos, true of voice. Apart from this statuette, nothing more survives. For such a well-recorded prince, unusually well-recorded as far as royal sons go, Tutmose's untimely death is very poorly attested. Compared to his grandparents, Yuya and Chuyu, the prince's afterlife is almost anonymous. Which is a damn shame, but that is just the way it goes. So, we must say farewell to Prince Tutmose. He did good work and was probably well trained for his future role. But fate had other plans, and in the third decade of his father's reign, Tutmose went to his death. His soul flew to heaven. Godspeed. The year was 1375 BCE, regnal year 25 of Amunhotep III. Egypt was suffering under a cloud of disease, a sickness. Either malaria or plague was sweeping through the land, and it carried many to their graves. Thousands of people throughout Egypt had died. 
This included the royal mother Moot M. Weir, Yuya and Choyu, parents of Queen T, and, perhaps worst of all, Tutmos, the son and heir of the king. In the royal household, things must have seemed very shaky indeed. The greatest change in royal fortunes was disruption to the succession. Prince Tutmos, groomed for power, was dead. In his place, the position of crown prince fell to his little brother. Prince Amunhotep was now about five years old, and lucky to be alive in this climate of disease. If he had ever contracted the illness, he had miraculously survived. Now, little Amunhotep was on a new path. One day, he would be King Amunhotep IV. Perhaps by year 28, the epidemic was abating. While this would have been natural, it is also possible that the pharaoh himself made some contribution to the recovery. You see, in a story written much later, Amunhotep III was credited with ending a plague by somewhat cruel means. The story goes that the pharaoh had a great desire to see the gods themselves. He was told by Oracle that in order to do this, he had to purge the land of people who were diseased. What followed was not an admirable moment. Quote, Amunhotep III conceived a desire to behold the gods. He communicated his desire to his namesake, a man named Amenophis Paapi's son. He was reputed to be a partaker in the divine nature. This namesake replied that the king would see the gods if he cleansed the entire land of lepers and other polluted persons. Pharaoh was delighted, and he assembled all of those in Egypt whose bodies were wasted by disease. They numbered 80,000 persons. These he cast into the stone quarries to the east of the Nile, where they would work segregated from the rest of the Egyptians. End quote. You know how Amunhotep ordered the construction of hundreds of statues of Sakhmet? Well, those 700 statues were made of stone, and that stone had to come from somewhere. How crazy would it be if the stone was quarried by the very people dying of disease? Yeesh. The tale, which is told by Manetho, is completely unsupported by the evidence from Amunhotep's time, so we have to take it with a huge bowl of salt. That being said, more excavations take place in stone quarries every year, and any settlements or cemeteries nearby might offer up some evidence. For now, we can't confirm whether the tale of the diseased people being made to work the quarries is actually true. Still, it is a dark story, and it could be one of those truth-is-stranger-than-fiction kind of things. Perhaps one day we'll have more information. Whether Pharaoh did this or not, at some point the disease abated. Perhaps a few years after its start, the outbreak was coming to its end. As it did so, the priests and physicians, same people really, would have turned their attention to purifying the lands that had been afflicted. There were several ways to cleanse a plague-ridden area. Reciting prayers, pouring libations, and burning incense were all very popular. But my personal favourite comes from a medical papyrus. In a short incantation and spell, the person cleansing the region is instructed to do the following. Quote, a man should say this spell after he has put daisies in his hand. Say the following. 
daisies are upon me. I am the abomination to your followers, Sarkmet. Your infection will exempt me. Your trap will exempt me. I am the bird who got away. I am Horus. Horus shall be around my flesh for life. End quote. Priests, doctors, and the victims who had survived their illness would recite a spell like this as an act of purification. Chances are they would burn the daisies afterwards, for fire was another way to cleanse the air of disease. Slowly but surely, such rites were performed throughout the land, as the disease of Sarkmet began to withdraw. Egypt had survived thanks to the power of her magics and the strength of her pharaoh. The price had been heavy, thousands were dead, including members of Amunhotep's close family. His mother, in-laws, and son had all lost their lives. Pharaoh's experience was, for once, the same as those who served him. We have no idea if Amunhotep himself ever contracted this disease. If he did, he obviously survived. I suspect he might have caught the illness for a time and recovered. I'll explain this in a future episode, but suffice to say, some of the pharaoh's later religious beliefs are quite strange, and surviving an epidemic like this might be an explanation. The disease began to recede, the cloud lifted off the people, and Egypt began to emerge from its darkness. Sarkmet was withdrawing, the trouble was over. Perhaps happy days could now return. By 1370 BCE, regnal year 30, the epidemic was over. Egypt could now begin the road to recovery. Throughout the land, cemeteries were filled with mourning families and the recently deceased. The royal palace was in a state of grief as well. Four family members were dead, struck down by the catastrophe. The pharaoh and queen mourned, and perhaps reflected on what had happened. For any religious observers, it was clear that this disease was the work of Sakmet. The fearsome lioness had sent her demons throughout the land to wreak havoc and cause death. Sakmet, always hungry for blood, had clearly been in a state of lust. Her violence was the cause of this suffering. To save Egypt, a great offering had been made to the goddess. Hundreds of statues carved in her image now filled the mortuary temple of the pharaoh. These statues outnumbered any other god. Truly, it had been an immense undertaking. But, hey, it had worked. Sakmet had now relented, the disease had abated, and by 1370, the land was returning to peace. Perhaps a few communities still suffered, but overall, the crisis was ending. Amunhotep III and his people had endured a great trial. Now, the living Horus could look once more to the future. With regnal year 30 beginning, it was time to celebrate the king's jubilee. A grand festival was approaching, the king's Heb Sed. This would require many preparations. Amunhotep was going to make it a time to remember.
sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. At the top of this episode, I noted how speculative the epidemic itself is. The Egyptians did not like to record calamities, preferring to omit them from the annals wherever possible. Disease was an affront to the natural order, an affront to Ma'at, and this kind of tribulation was usually ignored when it came time to record the events of a reign. That being said, there are several pieces of circumstantial evidence which suggest that an outbreak happened. For one thing, Manatho's story about a king throwing sick people into the quarries was clearly one with a long legacy. Even if it's apocryphal, the existence of this story suggests that someone named Amunhotep was remembered for this kind of act. Granted, this might not have been Amunhotep III, but the story does refer to someone who lived in his reign. Manatho's tale notes that the pharaoh took advice from a man named Amenophis Paapi. That, dear listener, is a genuine historical character. His name was Amunhotep the son of Hapu, and we will meet him in episode 101. So there was some kind of popular memory about the pharaoh and his counsellor doing something along these lines. Was it true? Maybe. The second hint that Amunhotep had to endure an epidemic is a reference made by his successor. The next king spoke of a great evil occurring in his father's reign. Since Egyptian spells often refer to disease as bad air or evil forces, this could be what that future king was referring to. Again, it's hardly conclusive, but it would be consistent with this kind of scenario. Doubling down on that, the reign of Amunhotep's successor did witness an outbreak of plague, and that disease ravaged areas of the Near East around 1350 BCE. So, there is a general context of epidemics in this particular period of history. The third and strongest suggestion of a disease is the Sakmet statuary erected at the Mortuary Temple. These statues represent an artistic program far beyond anything else that we know of. There are so many statues in such a specific location that we have to wonder what their intended purpose was. More conservative scholars suggest that they were there to heal the pharaoh himself when he grew sick later in life. But it's hard to reconcile an individual illness with the sheer number of statues. Granted, Amunhotep III was an over-the-top man when it came to monuments, but the scale of that particular project seems more appropriate for something affecting many people rather than just one. Finally, genetic and forensic studies confirm that malaria was present in mummies of the time. Although DNA studies in mummies is a very shaky science at the moment, enough examinations, independent of one another, have found traces of malaria. This supports the notion that it was widespread at the time. Plague has also been discovered at Amana, and hints of it at Deir el-Medina, 
the workmen's village of Thebes. Putting two and two together, an outbreak of malaria or bubonic plague seems more than possible. All up, the evidence is sketchy, circumstantial at best. Periodic outbreaks of disease were common enough in the ancient world, but the Egyptians rarely talked about them if they could avoid it. Egyptologists are well aware of this problem, and as scientific methods improve, we will probably see a lot more studies of ancient remains, in particular teeth, which are a very good repository for DNA and traces of disease. Hopefully, one day I can return to this episode and update it with some more concrete evidence. For now, it's time to move on. On to episode 100, Celebration. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please consider leaving a rating or review on iTunes. Every review helps the podcast grow in visibility. And in the competitive world of podcasting, visibility helps to stave off death. Do your part to placate Sakmet, leave a review, and help the show to thrive. For those who already have, I give you my thanks and offerings to your bar. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.